Now, let's turn in our Bibles to the first letter of the Apostle John, which if you're using the church Bible, you'll find on page 1,226, 1,226, if you have uh, your own Bible and have lost First John, best thing is to turn to the end and go from the book of Revelation back to Third John and Second John and First John. So, First John chapter 2, towards the end at verse 28, and we're going to read through to chapter 3 and verse 10. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointed teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Uh, John is writing almost certainly in the context of a church division, and uh, this is why he refers to those who are trying to deceive them. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that Christ appeared to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Actually, literally, no one who abides in Him sins. No one who abides in Christ sins. It's very striking language. So, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, most of our modern versions. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It's the same language. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." I think I was 16 at the time, so it wasn't yesterday, 
but the experience has obviously left a somewhat lasting impression on me. I was at a church meeting in Glasgow. I bumped into an older friend. As I came out, he had been an encouragement to me, although we didn't belong to the same church or even the same church denomination. And so, we went out for coffee together, and then a friend of his came along, uh, plonked himself down beside us, and uh, began to ask me questions, uh, or to be more emotionally precise, began to interrogate me. He began with, what church do you belong to? Happened to belong to a church that had been named after uh, the great Samuel Rutherford, 17th century, one of the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, our church confession. No idea why the church was called Rutherford, but it was. And that immediately gave him the clue that wherever I came from spiritually, it wasn't the best place to be, because the kind of place where he came from had certain kinds of names. And so, he interrogated me further. Am I a Christian? I said, yes. No, he said, are you a, are you a converted Christian? I said, yes. He said, no, he said, are you a real Christian? I said, yes. He said, no, he said, are you a born-again Christian? I said, yes. Now, eventually, when he got to asking me when I'd been baptized, I could see the daggers in his eyes that said, got you now. And I suppose the reason that left, obviously, a, a lasting wounded impression on my young spirit is partly because I already knew fairly well the first letter of John. And John's approach to the big question is so different. His letter actually is about this question, are you a real Christian? He's dealing with a situation in which there has been a division and there has been false teaching and there are Christians who are needing encouraged, there are Christians who are needing reassured that they really are Christians. And so, instead of a whole series of interrogations, what he does is he, he walks round this question again and again and again. The way his mind works is very different from Paul's. Paul begins at A and ends in Z. John's style of thinking is more like ascending a spiral staircase. He goes round and round and round the same points. And he wants to emphasize that being a real Christian involves basically three characteristics. One is what you believe about Jesus Christ and how you trust in Him. Another is how you belong to God's people and love the brothers and sisters. And a third, of course, is how you behave and whether the gospel has really transformed your life. And he's, he's in the middle of the spiral staircase at this particular point in his letter. Uh, he's, he is seeing further down, as it were, as he ascends higher. And I want us, as briefly as we have time for this morning, to notice that he underlines for us in these verses three characteristic marks 
of real Christians. Now, of course, it's true you can test yourself by this. You can you can read this and ask yourself the question, are these marks present in my life so that I, I can be sure I'm a real Christian? But we're really meant to read these as, as those who are Christians, but perhaps not as confident as others think we are. And He's coming alongside us, and, and because He uses this spiral staircase way of looking at things, he, he doesn't come at things directly. Actually, that's one of the challenges of reading His letter, that He doesn't come at things directly. But what He does is, come, come with me, He says, and, and let's look at these things together, which is what we'll do for a minute or two. And the first thing that I think we should notice is that the real Christian, he says, is someone who has been born of God. Notice that language in chapter 2, verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. And in chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God continues to sin because God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, obviously, he is not speaking here about our natural birth. And there is a sense in which every natural birth is God-given in his gracious providence. He gives children to the righteous and to the unrighteous in his remarkable kindness and generosity. But clearly, John is thinking here about a different kind of birth. Actually, for all practical purposes, he's the only person in the New Testament that uses this language about becoming a Christian. It's fascinating. John, apart from one passing reference in Titus chapter 3, John is the only writer in the New Testament who speaks about becoming a Christian as being born from above, born of God, born again. And of course, this immediately reminds us of the narrative in John chapter 3 and the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, in which Jesus underscores to that good man, he, he was the theologian in Israel, and he was a good man, he was, you remember how with Joseph of Arimathea, he went and asked for and buried the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was a bold and courageous thing to do, and he was a good man. But Jesus points out to him that he'd never been born of God. He says to Nicodemus, he says, look, Nicodemus, unless you're born of God, you'll never be able to see the kingdom of God. And certainly, unless you are born of God, you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus gives this, to me, absolutely fascinating response. Jesus said, look, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to grasp what the gospel is, and in order to enter the kingdom of God by faith, you need a divine birth, a new birth given to you. Otherwise, you'll not see it. You remember how uh, 
Nicodemus responds. He says, Jesus, I don't see that. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? It's as though his very words prove the point that Jesus has been making. But unless there is this supernatural work of God that opens our eyes to who Christ is, the wonders of His kingdom, and empowers us to enter it, we can never be part of God's kingdom, never part of His church. Of course, people say that's nonsense. Um, Sometimes people will respond to this teaching of Jesus and say, I can enter the kingdom of God and choose to trust Jesus Christ at any point. The best answer to that is to say, well, just to reassure me that's true, to show me that you can do it, do it now. And you can't. And this is precisely Jesus' point, that there are no resources in us by nature to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Although the language is different, it's the same teaching as Paul's, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless God comes in the power of His Holy Spirit and raises us up from that spiritual death, we'll never be able to enter the kingdom of God. We're no more capable of walking out of the tomb of our sin by our own decision and from our own resources than dead Lazarus was able to walk out of the tomb without Jesus calling into him and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And so, what John is saying here is, this is, it doesn't matter whether your experience has been dramatic or quiet or almost in the first instance unnoticed by you. It is a hallmark of those who are true believers, true Christians, real Christians, that God has done an amazing supernatural work in our lives. And the evidence of it, he says, is this, that when the seed of God is planted into our lives that begins this glorious new Christian life, we begin to become like the one who has given us birth. I remember seeing a photograph of one of our boys when he was a very small boy and, and then shortly afterwards raking through all the old papers, I came across this photograph from the early 1950s. And I thought, gosh, I look like that. Like father, like son. Or, you know, when you get into middle years or later years and you respond to a situation in a way that you never expected you would respond to, you say, where did that come from? And then you remember, that's how your father responded. So, this is part of the privilege of becoming a Christian, that we are born into the family of God by this marvelous supernatural birth. And it begins a long and slow and sometimes painful, of course, sometimes painful process of becoming more and more like the Heavenly Father. And this is why John emphasizes that just as the Father is righteous, just as the Father is faithful to all His covenant promises and to His loving grace, so we become faithful to Him in response. 
So, indication number one that we are real Christians is that we, I'm somebody who has been supernaturally born of God. Then, a second characteristic that he notices, a real Christian is not only someone who has been born of God, but someone who is learning to taste the love of God. Now, friends, this is not the same thing as being somebody who says, God is love. I mean, there are hardly any people in the Western world who, if they believe in a God of any kind, believe in a God who isn't love. Isn't that true? The one thing God has got to be by mandate is He's got to be love. And so, people will say, but the God in whom I believe is a God of love. Which again, the, the response is, really, you don't look to me as though you are living as somebody who believes that God is love. You don't seem to love His laws. You don't seem to love His person. You don't seem to adore Him. You are, you are lying through your teeth you are actually a brazen hypocrite. You don't really believe that God is love at all. So, First John, that has a great deal to say about God being love, is not just trapping out the kind of phrases that work in Western civilization even still. He's talking about tasting God's love, about experiencing God's love. I mean, look at the way he describes it. Chapter 3 and verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us. And the person who just traps out God is love never says this, do they? Look, he says. Look at the love the Father has shown us. And then he goes on, you notice, to make explicit how it is that the Father has shown us this love. In His Son, verse 5, Christ appeared to take away our sin and to set us free from our guilt. Verse 8, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil and to set us free from our bondage. And where is this love to be seen? Well, He tells us just later on in the chapter, doesn't He? In verse 16, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down His life for us. That is so important. You know, it's possible to, to live the Christian life as though you are sitting out in the field with the daisies, and one day you're saying, He loves me because things are going well, and the next day He loves me not because things are going badly, and whoops, He loves me, He loves me not. Um, because we like our world, we tend to equate whether God loves us with whether or not things are going our way. But that's not how you come to know the love of God, says the Apostle John. That's not how the Apostle John came to know the love of God. He came to know the love of God because he understood that Christ had died for him. You know how he calls himself the beloved disciple? Ever wondered about that? You know, there's something kind of arrogant about that, you know? I'm the beloved disciple. Personally, I don't think John was singling himself out, except to say, I am the beloved disciple. 
I don't think he was saying he loves me more than he loves anyone else. I think he was saying, my, oh, my, I've begun to taste this love of God in Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for me. The Father gave his Son for me. As Paul says in Romans 5, God has proved his love. He has logically proved his love. He has demonstrated his love. This is a, a demonstration of a proof, like a mathematical proof demonstrated. How does God prove his love for me? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's saying we begin to taste this. And I think there's a reason why he interjects, look, behold, in the old language, or in my English standard version, rather tamely, see. He's saying, look, do you not see? Look at the kind of love the Father has for us. Why does he emphasize this? Because we're often not looking at the kind of love the Father has for us. We're interpreting the love of God in the light of whether things are going well or badly for us, not in the light of the fact that He gave His Son to die for us, and He thus demonstrates that nothing will ever be able to separate us from His love. He's saying, if I've gone that distance for you… I mean, imagine you got to the church door this morning, and you were a very diligent popper of money into the collection bags as they went round. But you came to the church door and you said, gosh, I forgot my whatever it is. I'm going home. Now, somebody there will say, forget about that. If you've come this far, it's a small step to come. Don't, don't let your collection get in the way of coming in. And the gospel is saying to us, if the heavenly Father has said, I have gone to the extreme extent of giving my son to die for your sins on the cross of Calvary and all the agony, the exposure, the shame, the nakedness, the reviling, and the pain. Do you think I will ever stop short at giving you everything you need? John Cotton, who was an old English minister, in Boston, in Lincolnshire, and then sailed the Atlantic and became minister in uh, Boston in the colonies, as we used to call them. He has a beautiful statement about this. He says, here John reproves, lived in the 17th century where people could use words like reprove, here John reproves our squint-looking. You don't often see people with squints nowadays, do you? you know? But you, you get the point, you know, kind of. And he's saying that's how it is with us, that the love of God is staring us in the face and all that He has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we are, whoops. No, he says, turn your eyes on Jesus. Behold the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And then, of course, there is something else that he draws to our attention. A real Christian is someone who has been born of God. A real Christian is someone who has begun to taste the love of God. And thirdly, a real Christian is somebody who is able to look forward to the glory of God. 
Remember how Paul puts it in uh, Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And look at what that means, says John, in chapter 2, verse 28. It means that if we abide in Him, if we belong to Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame. It's, a, it's possible to be a very possible to be a Christian and, and, and just not want to think about the moment when you appear before Christ. And certainly, if you're, if you're not a Christian, there's no reason you would ever want to let your mind go to that place. But to be able to say that a real Christian is someone who has, who has got a quiet confidence that in that day will not be ashamed, will not, will not need to shrink back, as uh, this translation puts it at His coming. Now, how? Because he says the real Christian is somebody who dwells in Christ, who abides in Christ. And you see the picture? It's picked up in lots of the hymns, isn't it? We're able boldly to approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ our own because we are clothed in His righteousness divine, because we are abiding in Christ, because as Paul says in Colossians, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so, John goes on to say, look at this love. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. The world doesn't recognize, the world doesn't think it's glorious to be a child of God. But John is saying, one day it'll all be clear. But notice, he says, we're already the children of God. And so, here are two great bulwarks for, for frail and faltering Christian believers. Number one is that I'm hidden in Jesus Christ. And that means that in the sight of God, as we often say, I am actually as righteous as God's own Son. I can stand before the throne of God with the same confidence the Lord Jesus can stand before the throne of God, with the same righteousness with which the Lord Jesus can stand before the throne of God, because the only righteousness with which I can stand before the throne of God is Jesus' righteousness clothed in His righteousness divine. Bold I approach the… How, how else could it be? When you grasp that, John is saying, how else could it be? If you abide in Christ, then like Jesus, God's Son, you, you run into the Father's presence because you know that you're covered in His righteousness. My dear friends, this is something that we all need to grasp, and perhaps I most of all. I can never be more righteous in God's sight than I am this morning, if I'm a Christian. Never. Never. And here's another thing he's emphasizing. He's saying we are God's children now, although it hasn't yet appeared what we shall be. But listen to this. If you're a child of God, 
you can never be more a child of God than you are this morning. Isn't that, isn't that manna for our hungry souls and solace for our wounded hearts for some of us who are Christians? To think of it. He's saying, look, look, look. If he were a Glaswegian, he would say, would you know, look. See that the righteousness of Christ is yours. See that the elder brother has brought you to his heavenly Father, and his heavenly Father looks on you and says, I, I know you. You know what it's like to be a mother standing at the school gate, or even a father standing at the school gate, and the children, they, they all come piling out, and there, there are bags flying, and there are things half on and half on, and there are all kinds of things going on. Doesn't a mother or father immediately spot his or her child? And that's how it is with you if you're a, a real Christian. That's what he's teaching us. He's saying that we've been born of God and we begin to develop these family characteristics, that we begin to taste the love of God, and, and so we want to live unreservedly for Him. And he's saying to us too, we're already the children of God and we are anticipating the glory of God and we are sure it will come to pass because we are already His children and because there are moments by God's grace when we actually taste something of that glory so that, as Paul says, we are being changed from our present degree of tasting that glory to the glory that is still to come. My friend, perhaps that's a word for you today as an encouragement to look at the love of God and to think, who in their right mind would not want to be a Christian? Well, have you been brought to your right mind to begin to want that? Perhaps to begin to experience the stirrings within your heart of God giving you new birth, bringing you into His family, showing you His love, preparing you for glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the marvel of the gospel. Thank You for the elderly John and what often seems to us to be his kind of meandering ways around the same themes time and time and time again. We pray that You would help us as we think about these verses to to walk with Him and to listen to Him say as, as an inspired apostle and a friend to us, do you see that? Have you ever seen that? Did you see that? Oh, how great is the love You have shown for us that we should be called Your children through Jesus Christ and given the spirit of adoption to enable us to call you Abba, Father. Seal this in our hearts, we pray, by that same Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.